live now. All right. Um, okay. So we're going to go live. Cool. Very good. And we are going live for an extra, extra, extra special edition of the Data on Kubernetes community live streams. Today, we've got a killer panel all about Postgres. Ask me anything. Ask these amazing humans anything you want to know about Postgres on Kubernetes. Or we'll be mixing both, you know, a little bit of Postgres history. Just got some cool Postgres history about when the first Postgres Europe Summit was launched and where. We can get that trivia in later. Before we do that, though, as we're always doing now in our live streams, remember, folks, we have our co-located event in KubeCon in May in Valencia, Spain. That'll be coming up on May 16th. And you can get your proposals in as long as they meet our guidelines. Very, very clearly stated in that link that I just dropped in the chat. Um, so definitely take a look at that. We've got a, a lot of uh, talks that are coming in, submissions. Hoping to have two tracks this time to have even more data on Kubernetes content for you in KubeCon. That being said, I'm joined by two of our three panelists. One is on his way due to some family obligations. Uh, but first of all, I'd like to introduce someone who hasn't been on a live stream with us before. His name is Ryan Booz. He's in Pennsylvania. Ryan, how are you doing? What are we going to talk about today? Doing excellent. Uh, we're going to talk about Postgres and, and specifically Postgres and Kubernetes. But uh, I work for Timescale. Timescale is a Postgres extension uh, that allows you know a, a lot of functionality. We had a big announcement today of uh, some pretty exciting funding uh, that's really going to fuel the growth of what we're able to provide and, and help within the community. I, I specifically work in developer relations. Uh, you know, I just, I love seeing community itself grow, be supportive, help people learn you know, how to use this technology. It's just fun, right? Our whole world is built on data and it's just, it's exciting to see that grow. So really cool to be here and be a part of this. Love watching very, your very stuff, good. And great to have you with us. And, and, and as you mentioned, it, very auspicious and circumstances that just kind of came together that uh, there's some awesome news right now about timescale out there. You're now a unicorn. So do, are you going to be a unitiger or a tiger corn? I don't know. Good question. That out. Hybrid animals. That's okay. Our next guest has been with us before and very happy to have him again as he lives and breathes Postgres. Gabriel Bartolini, how are you doing? How's everything going today? Hi, Bart. Yeah, I'm good. Thanks. And, you know, it's great to be here. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Fantastic. Before we got started, oh, it's <laughs> so my my friend Mark Wong, you know, right, right. builds these, you know, or okay. actually crafts these, you know. Okay, so him. this is yeah. like handmade niche yeah. Postgres swag. This is serious. Yeah. All right, I've all got right. it here in my office. See. Okay, That's so awesome. wow, maybe we may be able to get a link to that because I'm sure we have some folks in the audience. I was telling Ryan before we started the level of enthusiasm and passion that goes into every Postgres talk that we have. I'm not trying to, you know, downplay other databases, you know, other communities and folks that are out there, but, uh, but anyway, very, very, very strong community here. And Gabriel, before we got started, you were mentioning, here's that trivia question for you, everybody. The first Postgres Europe uh, event was held where and when? It was, okay, unofficially, because, you know, unofficially it was in Prato, my city where I live in 2007. So that was the first let's say, gathering in Europe. So it wasn't organized by European uh, Association of Postgres because it didn't exist. So that, in that occasion, you know, it was the first time we actually met with all Postgres enthusiasts uh, around Europe and around the world, actually, who came to Prius. I think there were about 200, 250 people that joined. It was a free event. And that's, that's, awesome. we, that's when we understood I think that we were building something special as a community. And then we started to write down the statute of, you know, this uh, nonprofit organization based in France. 
called Postgres Europe, which we then founded. And then two years later, we organized. Uh, so the next year, again, in Prato here in 2000, uh, uh, 2008. And then the first Europe official European Postgres event was held in Paris in 2009. But the first two editions were here in my city, here in Prato. Yeah. Very good. Perfect reason to go. Excellent excuse yeah. to visit. Uh, and get it's together. close to Florence, you know. Close to Florence. Days. Enjoy amazing scenery, amazing people, amazing food, yeah. and high quality Postgres action. Yeah. There's also a blues fest, I believe, in your city as well, too. Nearby. It's next to, you know, there's Florence, there's Prato, and there's Pistoia. Okay. And there's good. a Pistoia. Pistoia is the blues capital of Italy. Yeah. Yeah. Because we're, we're already getting comments <laughs> about rock and roll in the, in the YouTube chat. But folks are not sure if you are more of an ECDC fan or Iron Maiden. If you had to choose, or do you have to choose? Well, you know, my wife is Australian, you know, so, is, you know, I have, you know, have to choose ACDC or Akadaka as they call them. You know? So <laughs> and in, Melbourne, in Melbourne, there's even a, a, a street called ACDC Lane. So, you know. Oh, that's, that's pretty serious. That's pretty serious. I'd have to do ACDC for two reasons. You talked about uh, being, you know, your family in in Pittsburgh. So I'm close to Pittsburgh. And my family, one of my cousins grew up in Pittsburgh. And I still remember the first time my memory of him, he was like 10 years older than me. He showed up our house with an ACDC shirt. And I had, I just didn't understand what that was. And years later, I'm like, oh, he was a music fan. I had no idea. I was like a little kid. So ACDC. <laughs> It's strong, strong. That being said, we've got a little bit of magic that's going to happen because it's a well-known fact in the data on Kubernetes community. If you say the word Postgres three times, this man will appear. So I'm going to say Postgres, Postgres, Postgres. And <laughs> he will be joining us very, very soon. Alvaro Hernandez is getting in with us. Let's see. Alvaro, are you there? Did the magic work? Yes, it did. Alvaro, what's up, man? Good to see you. Oh, oh, you're muted. We, we got your physical You have to, you have to say got, it a fourth time. You got to say Postgres <laughs> one more time to get the volume on. Let's see if we can do that. Yeah, I heard someone calling Postgres, Postgres, Postgres. So I'm here. <laughs> Ciao, Alvaro. Alvaro. Alvaro, absolute, oh. no, absolutely not a stranger to this community. Very nice to have you with us today. Once again, folks, remember, this is an Ask Me Anything, Ask Us Anything session. Um, we've got Alvaro from Ongress. We've got Gabriel from EDB. We've got Ryan from Timescale. The Postgres like level of knowledge is very high here. Um, so please feel free to get your questions uh, in the YouTube chat. If not, at the end, we'll continue the conversation on Slack, although Slack has had a few problems today. Not sure exactly what's going on there. Um, but anyway. It's because they use VTS. No, ah, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I'm not scared about those questions. We can take them. I'm happy okay. from those two. Okay. Good. We will definitely mention VTS later. We do have some questions that we have on Slack, but before that, um, Alvaro, you prepared a couple of slides. If you want to share your screen so we can just get a little bit of background, set things up for the conversation, and then we can jump into those questions. Okay. Um, I was just, uh, some, some slides, I, I hope that that's, that's not a problem. Uh, speaking of uh, the particular open source operator for Postgres that we have built, right? Um, um, so, and a little bit about myself uh, in order to make some introduction. So let me share that screen with you. All right. Is that okay? Yep, looks good. 
Okay. Uh, so first of all, as as you said, I'm maybe not no no stranger to this community, right? Uh, but just just for the compulsory one one slide about myself, I am the founder of this company called Ongress. Ongress means on Postgres. So it should be pretty obvious what we do. It's Postgres, and that's it. We only touch all the databases for migrations. I've been using Postgres myself as a DBA, as a user, as a developer for, for more than 20 years and, and never have to look elsewhere, again, except for migrations. And one of our company focus, and this also goes to the open source software that we developed, is a strong focus on research and development and innovation, bringing new things to the Postgres world, to the ecosystem, trying to make things better and simpler. And, and you know, I'll give you some concrete examples. I'm also no stranger in general to Postgres conferences. Uh, <laughs> I've been speaking quite a while all around the world. There's a lot of, all my talks are published to my personal website, ht.es. And I also do a lot of uh, community work. I, I, I'm also the founder of a nonprofit organization in Europe, also called Postgres, Fundación PostgreSQL. And, so, and quick question about that, is or is not the event happening this summer? Oh, oh my God, that's, that's a really good question. So we're, we're planning to have a meeting this weekend. Uh, to make a final call. But basically the uh, event that we organized 2019 for the first time in Ibiza in the summer, uh, in the beach uh, future, uh, an event to plan for the future of Postgres, right? It was a fantastic success for them pandemic hit us. This year, we're still receiving messages that there's a lot of people who have travel restrictions, uh, problems, uh, you know. So we are going to cancel the event. This event cannot happen virtually. Uh, we're going to cancel the event and very likely it's going to, sorry, this is like super prime news, but it's going to very likely become an unofficial and conference. Okay. Meaning we're going to keep the venue. Uh, anybody's going to be welcome to show up anytime, any moment, no fee, no registration, no talks planned, just show up. We're going to be there and we'll do something. Yeah. From um, unorganized talks to hacking on Postgres on the ecosystem, anybody's welcome. Two people show up, perfect. 200 people show up, we still have room for that. So good. That, that's going to probably be. Can, can Gabriel and I play blues music if we show up? Oh, that would be absolutely awesome. And it's going to be in front of the beach. There's a nice uh, beach club there. Uh, yeah, yeah, please. Be careful please. what you wish for. Ryan, do you sing or play any instrument? Uh, my, my undergrad degree was actually music. So yeah, I do. <laughs> perfect. Oh, we got a band. We got a band. Wow. Even plays band. better than me. <laughs> Good, 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 good. All right, Alvaro, Let's keep going. It. Okay, awesome. So I just prepared, again, a couple of slides uh, about Stackers. <clears throat> Stackers is an open source platform for running Postgres on Kubernetes. We say it's a platform because it's kind of more like an operator. It, it's really a one-stop shop to running Postgres on Kubernetes. First of all, the name Stackers means it's a stack. Why? Because Postgres, being the fantastic database it is, it is a little bit bare bones from the production perspective. You really need all the tools accompanying Postgres to run it in production. You need high availability, connection pooling, you need monitoring, you need backups, you need probably management console, you need logs management, and none of these tools come with Postgres. You need to handpick from the ecosystem and build them together. So that's what we do. That's why we call it Stackers because it's a stack of components. It works on any cloud, any Kubernetes platform, OpenShift, on-prem, whatever you want. Um, it's being used in production nowadays in multiple environments. And you're more than welcome to join our user communities in Slack and Discord, Slack Stackers.io, Discord Stackers.io, it's easy. 
And we follow as a company a Red Hat support model. So it's not that there is a, a open core model or a premium version. We have an enterprise version, but that's basically the same stack which you can use as open source with support and, and, and commercial license. So just to distinguish, to name a few of the uh, unique features that we uh, prepared with the Stackers. And as I said, this comes also from our perspective as a company of doing a lot of research and development. So for example, we have invented from scratch a system for having the logs in a distributed fashion. So basically in Postgres, now when you have a cluster of uh, 10 servers, you need to check the logs, you need to go one by one, you need to SSH basically, right? Or you use a, an external SaaS tool that does this. But we have built a system that takes all the logs from all systems using pure CNCF components, FluentD, FluentD, and then put them together on a central database, which is also managed by Stackgres and uses Postgres and Timescale, by the way, thumbs up, excellent, for storing the logs. So you can query the logs with SQL or from the web console. And this is something we just built from scratch and it's built into Stackgres open source, fully open source, anyone can use it. Um, it is, as far as I know, the only uh, platform on Kubernetes that supports ARM64. This we released on our recent version 1.1. So run AMD64, ARM64. You can run Graviton on, on Amazon Cloud or uh, the ARM processors in the Oracle Cloud. Save a lot of money, get the very good performance. We also are, as far as I know, the only ones that also added the flavor. So it's not only Postgres, the usual Postgres that we know, but also Babelfish. Babelfish is this uh, version of Postgres uh, that will be integrated into mainland Postgres, hopefully, that adds SQL Server compatibility. So basically, you can run SQL Server workloads on top of a Stackgres without paying SQL Server licenses. We also came up with a mechanism to load extensions dynamically. Extensions, Postgres extensions are the most well-known feature, the most significant feature can extend Postgres functionality to any, any degree, right? And uh, because we load extensions dynamically, then support as many as we want. Right now there's 100, like 150 or so extensions supported and there's hundreds coming down the road because we, they're not tied to the releases or to the operator. We can just add extensions at any time. And it's really designed for easy of use. We use extensively CRDs. Everybody knows I'm a fan of CRDs. We design them very carefully, very high level, does the API for our users. We want it to be super easy to use. But even if you don't do it the Kubernetes way, even if you just, uh, you know, what even simpler things to use, don't mess with JAMLs or JSONs or CRDs or the, this level of automations, there's also fully featured web console, right? So you can do anything from the web console, support Zark and light mode. So everybody's fully covered here. And any operation, like including checking the logs, you can do directly from the web console. So as I said, it is a fully featured platform. That's why we don't even call it an operator, even though technically it's an operator. And uh, it has very unique features that come from our R&D obsession into entering new functionalities of Postgres. And that's pretty much I just wanted to share to maybe also help kickstart the conversation. Very good. With that in mind, before we keep moving, any questions from questions, comments, flavors of Postgres, your favorite flavor on Postgres, Gabriel, Ryan? If Postgres has a flavor, what flavor does it have? I would say it's interesting to me. I, I'm, a, you I know, mean, my yeah. background, my back, <laughs> I love Vanilla. Uh, yeah, my background for a lot of years was with SQL Server before I came back to Postgres. And so, you know, the Babelfish thing has been very interesting to me to watch and see what's happening. So it's, that was interesting to see that you've you've included it. Um, have, we have a while to go, yeah. but <laughs> Gabriel. Yeah, no, I said you know as a joke, Vanilla because I actually like vanilla, you know, but anyway, 
uh, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, my favorite, that's how also, you know, what I have to think, you know, the, 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 the open source project, you know, that allowed me to build a career on Postgres, you know. But you have also, we also have to think about, you know, migrations from other, other databases and also I think the sustainability of, of a, an open source project. So, uh, for example, EDB has this proprietary version of uh, Postgres with a compatibility layer for Oracle. And that's what also makes it possible for EDB to uh, also pay developers that develop, you know, a big chunk of the open source version of Postgres. So that's how, you know, the sustainability of the project, I think, is, is guaranteed, you know. So okay. we've got the, these, these uh, version that it's used by, uh, you know, large enterprises that want to move uh, away from Oracle and into Postgres and have also a mix of, you know, both these advanced version and the open source one, you know, so. Very good. Very yeah. good. That being said, you know, Postgres, uh, and, and forgive me because I really should know the exact date. I know that its birthplace is in, in Northern California where I'm from, but I think we're, we're talking about something that's over 30 years old. Yes? Yeah. Originally it was in the 80s. Yeah, so I'm saying we know, do we know Postgres birthday? Is that something we celebrate every year? Like Pi Day? Officially or... it's 95, you know, when yeah. it was resumed. Okay, okay, so... okay. All right. So still quite old. It's older than that, but what we call today Postgres. Postgres. Well, yeah. Postgres, it's yeah. from 95, so it made 25 years. Okay. Right. So with that, yeah. So with that in mind, though, is it still, and this is also why there's, from what I understand, a lot of love, community, battle tested. It's been, you know, it's it's seen many, many things, technological changes, etc. One thing that we find, though, particularly in the Kubernetes world, is often people referring to technologies as, you know, cloud native, Kubernetes native, or that they have to be sort of shoehorned in. In the case of, in the case of Postgres, compared to perhaps other databases. What are the, what might be some of the unique factors of when you say like, okay, we've got this, now we want to make the jump to Kubernetes. What are the first things that folks need to keep in mind? Let's say I'm a DBA and I've been, I've been working with Postgres for quite some time. My organization is going through the transition to the cloud or cloud native technologies and even further to, to Kubernetes. What do I need to do first? Obviously I need to watch Gabriel and, and Alvaro's videos on our YouTube channel. But at an organizational level or in terms of resources or things I need to keep in mind, what would be the first step there? Gabriel, what would you say? I think is first understand that there's a new world. I think that's the biggest challenge. And because I've gone through that, okay. And uh, I think if you don't open that door and see the world of Kubernetes, I think you don't even understand, you know, that there's a new world out there, you know. So you pretty much ignore the change that I think eventually everyone will have to do, you know? So, so I'd say first is to study Kubernetes. So if you've got Postgres skills, they won't, you won't lose them. They will change them. You need, you need to adapt. But I think you need to understand first how Kubernetes operates. And then you'll, you'll pretty much go you have to go, you know, go down the, the ladder of inference, you know, so to, to go to concrete facts. So go down and then raise it up, you know, walk that up again by learning how Kubernetes works. And then, as I said, understand how the two worlds can, can 
can live together because I think they can, you know. So I think, but I think learning Kubernetes and how you need to change, how you need to adapt and adapt your, your knowledge of Postgres is the first step. Very good. With that in mind, you know, Ryan, because working in, in, in DevRel, you're out there every day interacting with folks and, and generally imagine getting questions and problems and pain points and difficulties, things of that nature. When, it, you know, Kubernetes is one more technological transition. You know, we, we, we talked about, you know, going to the cloud, you know, from as, as many as 10 years ago. When you're dealing with folks just on a, on a human level and in terms of mentality, when you're introducing a new technology, whether it happens to be an extension on Postgres, whether it happens to be Kubernetes, how do you approach that in order to make folks comfortable? Because I think that's one of our biggest challenges as a community is to make sure that people are comfortable so that they won't get discouraged if they're having difficulties. What are the things that you generally do when you're approaching this? Oh, wow, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think I listened, you know, I've watched a number of what uh, both of these gentlemen have put out around this technology. Uh, and, and the same thing happens within, as you're saying, any technology, Postgres, database is trying to figure out you know, there's always the promise of what it can provide. You know, it's, that's my current spiel, not to sidetrack this much, my current spiel on Babelfish is there's a hope of what it will provide. It's not there yet, right? So understanding what the expectations are and knowing where someone's coming into the conversation so that we can align them correctly. I think that's been one of the biggest challenges with databases in general across the scheme is moving from that kind of physical world where we, we understood a lot about the logistics of how everything's working together within the server and the ways that we could tweak it and make things better and faster to how does that translate to a virtual world? Not just, you know, like first you start with just the container, right? How does that even work just by getting to the container and now trying to make this thing uh, that is very reproducible, very high availability. You know, all of the, all the things that Kubernetes provides to you on top of that. And I think that's, it's, it's really breaking down the walls of, you know, what is the terminology? What can you actually expect? There's always more expectation often than reality, right? You think X does this, it turns out it actually does Y and you got to come back. So I think just trying to break down some of those walls, you know, even for me, you know, I, I love that you started just talking about the operator, I, you know, as I, I'm not a huge Kubernetes guy. That's not, that's not my focus within Timescale within Postgres. You know, we do a lot of it internally, just as all of you guys are with your companies as well. And this provided some huge benefit for, for us, for our customers and so forth. But even just say like, so what is an operator? Like what really is going on and how can I understand that layer of it so that I can help someone else, you know, move forward there. Great point with that. Let's take it to Alvaro because you did mention this notion of the operator and it's yeah. something that after over 115 live streams in our community, it comes up so frequently that nowadays we, we almost ask all of our, all of our speakers, what do they think about the about the operator uh, paradigm, the operator pattern? Is it the only solution that we can see? The costs that go into it, the technical level that's necessary to build one. But I'm also curious. What I always ask as well is that Alvaro, when you're going out and interacting directly with clients, how do you explain an operator to someone who really does not have a background on this? Um, maybe sometimes it's not even necessary to explain all that. But how do you how do you go out there and explain that to folks? And and what are maybe some of the basic mistakes or assumptions that people might have regarding them. Yeah, that, that's a very interesting topic. If, if you realize before, I, I didn't say that Stackrace is an operator. I say it's a platform. And, and this is intentional. I, I'm actually trying to avoid calling it an operator uh, because that's, that's a, detail techni a technical detail and an implementation detail. Uh, mm -hmm. This is a platform that provides services for running Postgres on Kubernetes. 
it is, as I said, you know, like a one-stop shop because it's supposed to have all the tools that you may need to operate Postgres and Kubernetes. How it works behind the scenes, that's, that's up to the technical people who want to know about that, right? And behind the scenes, there is an operator, certainly. Actually, there is two operators. Um, but, uh, you know, that's a technical discussion. Now, let's go into the technical discussion. Someone asked me, okay, but still, what is an operator? Can you explain, explain an operator in layman terms? Okay, let's do that. So basically an operator is kind of the sum of two components. The first is the CRDs, which I tend to call an API. It's an interface for the user to interact with this software. In our case, it's a set of YAML files that allows you how to specify a cluster that you want to create or a Postgres configuration that you want to employ or a backup configuration that you want to point to a specific S3 bucket or whatever. That's just a YAML file that you type in and that's the interface. That's called the CRD, which is custom reserve definition, but that's, that's already getting too technical, right? So there's part of the operator is an interface. And then there is a daemon, it's called a controller, it's like a daemon in software, a service that uh, kind of uh, reacts whenever you change anything or you create or destroy these objects. So let's say you, you type a YAML file, say create this object, and, and then this daemon reacts to these and say, oh, you want to create a Postgres cluster, let me take care of that. And then behind the scenes, it will create the pods, the services, the storage classes, stateful sets, whatever it's required to fulfill your desires. And we'll keep this updated. So if anything happens, if a pod dies, you will reschedule it, you will apply a new one, and you'll, you'll get high availability, it will schedule backups, automatic operations, and any sort of those things. Now, <clears throat> it's also true that there's a, an assumption that normally there's kind of a one-to-one -one mapping between this, uh, okay, I have one of these interfaces, these CRDs, and one controller. This is no longer true. And actually, we have a, a, quite an asymmetry. We have a lot of these interfaces because we want a high-level interface for the user and uh, just one main controller, but then there's also a controller which is local to every pod for doing other kinds of operations. So it's a mixed architecture. But again, that's uh, technical details, which I can get as deep as you want because I, I love that part. Uh, but it's necessarily not, not, not important for, for the customers, for the users. It's important how this works, what interface that, does it provide to me? How can I operate Postgres with the level of a Postgres expert without being a Postgres expert? Mm -hmm. That's our focus. Very, very good. And I, I think, and once again, some of these things are on the, you know, a need to know basis. Do we want to overwhelm the client, you know, the customer with too many technical details? Also terminology, an operator, what's that? They say, oh, it's a platform. Uh, you know, same with CRD, API, making it comfortable. Something, it's very silly, but a historical example that we go to a lot is when automobiles were first being constructed people were afraid because it's something they hadn't seen. It seemed like something out of science fiction. So I'm not, I haven't done a lot of research on this, but apparently people would even put like a, a, a fake horse's head on the front of a car. So it's like, oh, it's just kind of, so once again, to make these transitions smoother. <laughs> Gabriel, in your case, you know, as you mentioned, working with large scale enterprises who often very, uh, oftentimes might be resistant to change. You start bringing words like Kubernetes operators, you know, um, into the conversation. Does that get complicated? How do you, you know, make it make it more comfortable for the for those kind of transitions? Does the operator paradigm pattern come up frequently? How does that work for you? Well, I think it depends on the on the level of again on the level of knowledge of Kubernetes, hmm. uh, you know, um, uh, that the customer has and where they are in the journey, you know, the transformation journey. 
like the cloud native transformation journey. If they are right at the start, I think uh, we need to use, for example, I normally use the concept of, of state. Okay, so I normally, I mean, we emphasize a lot on, on uh, DevOps principles and specifically declarative configuration. So the, the whole idea is that you define a state. For example, I want a cl cluster, a Postgres cluster with uh, two replicas. That's it. Okay. Uh, whereas in imperative world, you say, you know, I create a primary, then I clone the first standby, then I clone this, the second standby, and I put them in replica. Okay. So by defining the state, uh, I normally uh, say, okay, so if there's a, an unexpected event, okay, what happens is that we need to do everything it takes to restore, so to bring the current state to the uh, desired state. And that's what an operator does, okay? So, and essentially an operator for Postgres is basically, uh, you know, when we have developed ours, we've pretty much put all our 20 years ex expertise, you know, manual expertise in programming what the Gabriele or, you know, the, the Marco or the, you know, the other developers and add and shout so out, on. shout out to Francesco, our, Francesco, our martial arts master. Yeah, they would do if they were on support or if they were, you know, leaving that experience of failure, you know? So, so okay, what, what would we do if that happens? Okay, so that expertise has been put in the operator. Okay, so, but I, I would use the concept of state. So this is what you want. This is how Kubernetes makes sure that this is basically Kubernetes and make sure that at every second, the cluster will be in that situation. If, you know, there's the, the state changes, the operator will bring it back to the, to the desired state. Right. Yeah. Got it. That's good. And like you said, once again, questions of trust, transparency, you explain there are people who I can name that have been involved in this project and they're pouring all that expertise, uh, yeah. experience and know-how into this. So once again, questions of, questions of trust. We, we did just get a question about, oh, uh, someone asked for a, a quick repetition of the explanation of what is an operator, but you just totally covered that, Gabriele. So next question that I want to get to, I want to start off, uh, Ryan, can you talk about, you know, working in the DevRel world, because we got, we got a question from somebody in the audience about security practices with Postgres. Um, what are perhaps things that make Postgres unique when it comes to the challenge of security? Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to turn it over to the Kubernetes part to, uh, to Alvaro after that. <clears throat> can we just go over that really quickly? We're talking about making sure that our data is safe and secure on Postgres. Oh, man, that, that feels like a Titanic of a topic. Uh, <laughs> I think that, that you know, what Postgres has done well uh, within the space of, of database and data is Hey man, it keeps coming back to the same things we talk about generally. Postgres as an open system allows it to be well vetted, right? So there's so many, there's so much development happening now in that space on top, you know, things like backup, uh, you know, the opportunities for different ways to provide high availability, even if you're not in Kubernetes, what that looks like. Um, I think that the, what's also been really interesting to me is how responsive over the last two releases, specifically, I'd say Postgres 13, 14, changes within the database itself, you know, without fully understanding the, the, the bend of the, the question, just how to more easily uh, handle roles within the database so that you are uh, just more, more uh, you know, you, you have more faith in the way that you have set up your access uh, components so that 
people are getting you know access just to the data they're supposed to get things of that nature um, but I think in general there's a lot of work happening right now and and, and again uh, you know either um, you know anyone can talk you know Gabrielle probably knows as well as Alvaro but you're just in that backup space in particular, how to make sure that your data is secure, how to make sure that as the data size grows, that's probably one of the biggest things that is happening. You know, when I interact with people, particularly around timescale, because they're so, the, the data size is getting so large, how can we do that effectively? How do we know we can get backups quickly? How do we know we can do, you know, A, B, C, D? So I think that's, those are the things I know we're focusing on. I know, uh, you know, that's one of the benefits of having something like Kubernetes to be able to say, your, your storage is totally decoupled and you can, you know, if something happens to the server, I can spin up a new server, have it connect. Uh, you know, it's not all wrapped up in one place at this point, which is is really excellent. And that's awesome. Great points there. And I really like the point about volume. We often refer to examples like an autonomous car, the amount of data being generated <laughs> by an autonomous car. How's that going to be stored? Yeah. How are we going to know that's going to be secure? Backups, disaster recovery, all the things that come into there. To take this question a little bit further regarding security, um, Alvaro, could you, um, someone asked in the audience um, that about that you're using Postgres in, in Kubernetes and uh, in, in a Kubernetes cluster with, and EKS wants to make sure that it's completely secure. Can you please uh, share some of the best security practices for that? Well, th there is a lot, of, a lot of options that you need to cover uh, for a fully secure cluster. Uh, starting from the Kubernetes cluster hardening itself, which is uh, a topic on itself, right? Uh, and I will not touch on that, but there's a lot of literature on this. Um, there are many interesting proposals on this using virtualization on top of containers, uh, using uh, things like operating systems like Bottle Rocket, and of course, mm -hmm. all the guides for hardening and tuning Kubernetes uh, security. Yep. Now, from the database perspective, so what are the things that we can do? There is obviously like storage layer services or network layer and so forth. So at the storage layer, what is obvious is that you can use storage encryption. This depends on your storage class that you are using uh, for most operators or platforms. As far as I know, this is mostly transparent. You just need to specify storage class and volumes are provisioned dynamically from this storage class. So in this case, what I would say is go and just uh, use, uh, you know, maybe you want to use custom managed keys for your own volumes or, or you prefer managed, but anyway, use encryption for the, for the volumes. Um, then in terms of services or networks, there's a lot of options that you can do there. There's, there's the OPAs, the open policy agents, which you can use to restrict uh, access to the, to the network itself, which is a recommended practice also. There is, for example, in Stackers, we do some default policies that only open, some open ports are open to only some, uh, you know, uh, network machines. But there are some principles that change when you use Postgres alone or Postgres in Kubernetes. Um, for example, Postgres authentication, more specifically, well, part of the authentication and authorization, but in, in this particular, it's about access even to the database, is crafted on a file called pghba.conf. And HVA means host-based authentication. And this authentication is based on the kind of source or the originating package of the communication, which is basically an IP, right? So it's saying, I want to allow connections from these IPs under this particular database or user or some, some specific conditions, but essentially it's based on, on who is connecting from. And this 
does not really apply to Kubernetes. You, you, you don't talk about IPs in Kubernetes, right? You just don't know where people are connecting from. And there's mesh networks and there's a lot of indirections. You don't even know the IPs. So, and, and Kubernetes, you need to do this based on labels. So some mechanisms that are used uh, for Postgres DBAs may not apply directly here, but, but you can use Kubernetes native ones. And I think that's a preferred mechanism. Uh, so in this case, uh, OPA could be a very good alternative to those. Good. Well, just a follow up to that. Um, uh, continue on the security. Uh, continue on the security question. Stateful is good, but if using RDS um, on AWS, how can I secure my Postgres database? Well, actually, I, I also wanted to mention there's there's a third aspect, which is the connection to the database itself, right? So mm -hmm. let's assume now you have secure storage, you have secure network. And now you still want to connect to Postgres. So Postgres supports several authentication mechanisms and, and you can pick which ones to use. You can, first of all, decide whether to use SSL or not. In, in this case, probably you want to use SSL. Um, then you can also decide whether this SSL will be just like the normal SSL TLS where you just connect or where you verify the certificates of the server or where you verify the certificates also of the clients. In other words, you can emit certificates by the server that will be clients will need to process in order to connect to the server. So you can specify also authentication at this level, at the TLS protocol level. And then even then you can specify the users which authentication mechanism they're gonna use against the database. There's the classic uh, MD5 and, and some of the methods which are the scourages of today. And there is an, a more modern one called Scrum authentication mechanism, which is much more secure. I know it quite well because I actually developed the, the library for the JDBC driver from Scrum. Okay. <laughs> um, it, it, there's a lot of math involved, which I totally forgot already, but more or less I still get the, the idea. And, and it's much more secure uh, than, than, than all authentication mechanisms. So it's, it's really a combination of all these mechanisms. And you also need to understand which your security, obviously like usual, no? what are your security requirements? Maybe, maybe you don't need all of this or maybe part of it. Okay. Good. Yeah. Thank you. If I can add on that, I yes. would I would also uh, I actually shared in the chat an article that I wrote uh, a while ago about this. I, I would I think with Kubernetes we also have it. You know, uh, the the container level. Okay, so that that's very important to me because we are actually able to, for example, by default limit uh, the permissions that you know under which this container can run. And we can also limit that to a single process, basically. So for example, we can avoid, for example, opening up SSH connections and, uh, and also, yeah, basically um, even scan the images. So thanks also to, to um, rolling updates, we can update more frequently uh, our infrastructure and know exactly thanks to immutable immutability, which versions uh, of each software we are, we are running in, in our infrastructure at any time. So I think that that's important, but it, the other aspect, I think it's, it's the layer before, which is the, the code layer. So I think, and that's the, the reason why I, I actually started to use Kubernetes in the first place, which is uh, the integration with, uh, with the development pipelines. So I think by having, uh, I think Kubernetes uh, accelerates the, the, the adoption of, 
of uh, um, automation and automated tests uh, within organizations. So I think it's important for a database to be in that, in that segment as well, so that even the database can be tested uh, along with, uh, with applications. And with code scanning and things like that in the automation pipelines, I think we can also uh, increase security uh, um, you know, at the left and shift actually implement the shift left on security, you know. So I think I think that's also important to go down to these two layers as well, you know. Okay, good. Mm. Uh, another question for you, uh, Gabriele. Um, yeah. advent what are the advantages and disadvantages of using something like EKS uh, or AKS for hosting a service? Well, that's I think freedom. So I think it's uh, it's about. Everyone, it's everyone's choice. I mean, if you want to manage your Kubernetes servers by yourself, you've got the skills, you can do that. Otherwise, you can use a managed service like EKS, AKS, GKE, and so on, you know, and be in the cloud. I think what the real advantage of Kubernetes is that it not only enables you to run applications in, on different cloud providers, so have, for example, multi-cloud environments, but it also reduces the risk of vendor lock-in on cloud, cloud providers, for example. So I think that's, that's why another reason why, you know, these standardization of the infrastructure that Kubernetes is bringing, together with all the advantages of, you know, more velocity of development and, and you know, the, the DevOps principles that I mentioned, you know, earlier, I think it, 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 it it gives more freedom to 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 end users on on you know on where to host the 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 environment. They could even use bare metal installation. That that's actually the very good thing of Kubernetes. You know, you can run on bare metal. You can run on premise, and that's the same applications. You know, so yeah. I think that, that that's very important. Yeah, the flexibility, um, like you said, the freedom offered. Alvaro raised his hand. I love your politeness. Thank you. Yeah, that was great. Go for it. Sorry. Now, I just wanted to add that uh, I particularly believe that, you know, uh, vendor looking is, is, is an important, important decision factor in, as of today, right, in running any, any technology. But fortunately, Kubernetes vendor looking is uh, close to zero. It's, it's negligible, right? So uh, if I, I'm going to create a complex Stackers cluster with a very specific definition and configuration of everything, and, you know, it's going to end up being a hundred you know, lines of JAML file, and I want to move it from running on EKS to running on-prem, maybe I'm not going to change even a single line. Maybe I need to change one line, maybe add a few, remove a couple of annotations here and there. It's going to be almost a no effort. So from this perspective, I would say vendor locking is close to zero. Being vendor locking close to zero, what, uh, what I would then factor for the decision is how much of an effort am I saving by using a managed service and what is the cost for that, right? So if you don't know what's behind the scenes, um, in particular, I've been, I've been following this from, from Amazon, but I'm sure GKE or EKS or any other providers know different than this. But I really recommend watching a talk about what they do behind the scenes. Again, I've, I've watched a talk about EKS on, on reInvent their online. Uh, uh, just, just look at what they're doing. And, and it's a huge, amazing uh, work. The team that is behind, the, all the effort that is being put to make sure that every distribution is fully tested, fully validated, configured, secure, uh, and, and you know it, it links with your accounts uh, it, it, and it's all correct. 
and it's updated and they, they manage it for you. And then, so I think there's a great value in, in Kubernetes managed services. So then the, the factor left is a cost. Is this a high cost or a low cost? And, and the cost, for example, speaking of EKS, from the top of my head, I may be wrong, but the order of magnitude is going to be correct. It's around $70 a month per cluster. So unless you're running tiny clusters, and because the, the cost is not proportional to the size of the cluster, it's constant, I would say if you're running more than a few worker nodes, which is most usually the case, the cost is going to be a small fraction of the cost of your cluster, meaning it's a no, a no go. It's sorry, it's, a, it's the opposite, right? It's like there's no way you don't want to do that because the vendor looking is very small. The value provided is very high compared to managing it yourself, and uh, the the cost is is also very very small. That means uh, that said, uh, you know, running it yourself on the cloud or running on prem is a perfectly valid option. Nothing against that. But if you have the option to have Kubernetes itself as a managed service and you don't have small clusters, I think it's a quite wise decision in general. Okay, good to keep in mind. Like you said, on the cost element as well too, on all these things, the information is out there. Like if you're willing to take the time and do your homework, you can probably figure out what's going to work best for you. That being said, you know, companies that are in our ecosystem, like um, what's it called? Stackwatch and KubeCost is a tool that they have. If you're into that, check them out. They just raised some funding. Shout out to Web, great team. Next question, once again, Ryan, you are in the world of DevRel. So this is the world of pain points and emotions and struggles and frustrations. If we're thinking about the perspective, as we see higher and higher adoption of you know, folks running stateful workloads on Kubernetes, what would you say would be the, the common fears since you interact with DBAs? You know, when we've had these conversations about the journey from DBA to SRE, a great talk from Patrick McFadden, if folks want to check that out on our YouTube channel, but what are the, the common fears that you encounter, um, fears, concerns of more traditional DBAs that are considering moving you know, Postgres to Kubernetes? What are the kind of things that you would say that the, the pain points, the doubts, the sort of, oh, maybe we're not ready for it yet. What kind of things do you think come up there? Yeah, man, uh, great, great question. Uh, let, me, let me start by saying this. I, I really appreciate that both um, Alvaro and um, Gabrielle said that you know, one of the, one of the beauties of Kubernetes in, in this new environment is that opportunity for freedom, right? And so, you know, even mentioning something like RDS, and I am very vendor agnostic at this moment, right? Like just mentioning any of the various flavors, you're always going to give something up when someone else is managing your database layer. And so now if you have an opportunity to say, this is the, this is what I need. These are the extensions I need. This is how I wanted to run. This is the, the interface that, that works best for my application you've now taken that, you know, I can still get a lot of the benefit, but still retain a portion of control because that has become a problem. You know, even in the Postgres world, all of us, regardless of what companies we work for, we recognize that, hey, if I'm on RDS, I'm always going to end up being six, eight months behind, you know, like, because they, they have so much, there's only so much that someone else can do. But I, if I can, you know, gain that uh, control for myself, I think it's a huge opportunity. So I would start with that, that, you know, seeing that we have all gone through, everyone on the screen has been around through the database stuff long enough to know that we went from, you know, it doesn't, again, doesn't matter what your database is. We all have these various tuning features. And I love that all of them start with, where did that value come from? And the story is almost always, 
well, that was Joe's computer under his desk. And that just kind of worked for that computer when he developed this thing. And now you kind of tune it for wherever you are today. Every database has that. So one of those configurations is based on something like that. So we've gone from the hardware specific stuff to now we have a data center where we, you know, we get more, you know, set up over our clusters and our storage layer and our rate arrays and whatever. And then we've all begun the transition into containers. Like now we have the next part, like how can we use our resources better and, and what have you. So we've, we've taken those transitions. I think knowing now this is just, it's almost like the melding of all of those things, right? We we're using the, the power of the, the, the tool set that is now available to us in so many different locations. And we get to actually retain maybe more control as if it were ours, but use someone else's resources for it. So I think the concerns of, is it going to perform well enough? Uh, is the, is how am I going to recover? I think those are the pieces of Kubernetes that are still, you know, there's a lot of good voices in the Kubernetes world that are saying, oh, I'll use Kubernetes if you really need Kubernetes, right? Cause there is just so much there. I think those are the biggest fears. What I love is that we have a number, specifically in this realm, we have a number of companies that are doing this work right now that are trying to give us the best practices, give us solutions that, that can make that make it work. It's, it's never perfect, right? I, I don't know if either of you want to speak to, you know, again, I, I work timescale. We have a hosted solution. We have our own operator for doing all of our stuff. And still, right, Etcd is, is not perfect. And you, you still end up sometimes with like, Mayhem. So learning how to get out of those things, I think it's just going to be the piece that, that people need to figure out. And maybe that's an opportunity for us in the community to say, what are the top three or four things that if you're going to make this trade, it's one thing to say, here's an operator and run these couple of commands, get things running. But what is the playbook for when, when something really hits the fan and you need to back out? Um, that's hard. It, and, you know, again, I'm looking at two or three operators represented on this screen. And again, I, I know we use that loosely, but Everyone's hitting a little bit different point. So I don't know. I hope that's a helpful thought process. I think that, that, I think that is. I think that is. No, I think that is. And I think this is why we have this community to get these things out into the open. Like you said as well, is that yeah. it, we would love for there to be a playbook. You know, these things are, you know, sometimes specific to one set of technologies or another. And as you rightfully mentioned, we're always talking about trade-offs and negotiations. So I think that's uh, something that everyone, there's no silver bullet. You know, we've got to keep that in mind. We've got to be realistic and keep that with us uh, throughout the whole process. Gabriela, you had your hand up? I love that. I feel like I'm a teacher. Thank you, Ryan. I mean, I I totally agree with you, you know, what you said. I wanted to add to that point that I think I see though many similarities with, you know, both the VM world and the the physical world. I think there's a lot of work that I think should be done before, uh, before deploying a database in a production environment. I think I cannot stress that enough how, how storage is the most cri- critical component. So I think if you have a m- misconfigured storage, you'll lose data. So that whether you are in Kubernetes or in VMs or physical mm, machines, I still remember when, you know, for example, people wouldn't configure properly the battery or wouldn't monitor the battery on the, on the hardware, hardware controllers, you know. They thought the battery was there and they would lose data, you know, with the cache. Yeah. So um, I think, you know, there's every, every world has, you know, the, the you know, the, the precautions, you know, that we need to take before we deploy. So I think always, you know, as I always say, test, 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 benchmark before, you know, and measure everything. Good. 
Yeah. Now we got Ryan raising his band, his hands. His, this is fun. I just, you know, it's like, no, I just want to add, good. this is good. Uh, I just, you know, I think yeah, I totally agree. And I think maybe the one point to add on, which we're all saying is as much as there's a, the potential fear of what it looks like to move into this new thing, there is still the basics of, of understanding how to be a, a good DBA on a Postgres database. There's still those things you need to at least have an understanding of what's my workload, you know, to, to even Alvaro's point, like, yes, it's very easy to spin this up, but if you don't choose the resources you need wisely, you know, it, you still need to understand those basics. Um, you know, I, some recently I, I saw a talk uh, and, and I've, I've referred a lot of people to Alvaro's site about even configuring Postgres, right? There's lots of great stuff there. And, and, just understanding what those things do and why it matters so that if you need to tune what you're doing, it's still a database. It's still Postgres. And there's still ways you can make it better, right? Yeah, that's great. And that kind of segues directly into our, our next question that I want to put out there to everybody because I think we're, we're, this is kind of being touched on by, by everybody in one way or another. Mm. So regarding you know, the, the DBA toolkit, when they get into this you know, Kubernetes sort of environment, are they going to have fewer responsibilities, more, or just different responsibilities when moving to Kubernetes? And what sorts of things would a DBA need to learn? I think, and I, I hate to just be the shameless salesman, but you have the answer in our community. Uh, in terms of things to, to learn, I would also, I can't recommend enough um, Patrick's talk. It's 20 minutes from our, our KubeCon event last year in May about the, the road from DBA to SRE, kind of explain, you know, how the, the you know, the DBAs are having different Things they can use in their backpacks and their and their tool belts uh, to be able to approach this challenge. Alvaro, you have your hand up though, so go ahead, take it away. Actually, I also wanted to chime in with the first question, but I saw this question coming, and I thought I will respond to, uh, as, to that as a whole. Do it. So perfectly linked. So, and, and and this starts actually from what Gabrielle said said before at, at today, right? The, like it's a bit of a mindset change for the DBA. Actually, I don't like labels either, but uh, DBAs today, if I would have to use the label, are no longer DBAs. They are kind of DBREs or whatever you want to call it, DBOps. Uh, there is a lot of operations and architecture, not only database itself, classical DBA, you know, tuning this parameter or, or, or just typing this command. So the, there's this mindset change. For example, the, the first question I've seen being asked by people who are less familiar with Kubernetes is, Where's my SSH? Where do I SSH into the server? I'm like, no, hold on. There's no server. First of all, there's something called a pod, but uh, there's no SSH. You don't SSH to anywhere, right? There's how come? How I debug and how do I troubleshoot? Uh, and, and you know, and, and then when you get into platforms like, like Stackers, where we have these distributed logs, the logs are not in the pod. So it's like, oh, that I cannot SSH and, and, and I cannot even get the logs. No, yeah, they're there with all, all. you know, like there, there's there's a mindset change, but this mindset comes from the fact that as of today, Postgres, the way Postgres has been moved to, and this is very specific to Postgres, all the databases might be a little bit different, but the way Postgres has been moved to Kubernetes environment is a little bit like take the part of the word monolith and just put it into a container, which is fine for a first step, right? But in my opinion, in the years to come, this monolith is gonna be a little bit tear apart into chunks that can be replaced by Kubernetes native components and handled better by those. Why? Because they are more familiar, they bring less uh, knowledge burden to the users. If, for example, Postgres can manage SSL certificates, not manage themselves, but accept them, accept them, uh, 
but why don't you search manager for that, right? It's there, it's, it's a CNCF ecosystem project, like the same like we do with the logs with Fluent Beat and Fluent D, right? So, um, or we use also the MY proxy for proxy impostors and getting metrics out of it. Uh, and, and then you don't need to, to terminate, we terminate even SSL at Envoy. So you don't, we don't use Postgres SSL at all, right? So there are certain parts of Postgres that don't need to be used. And so this means that for the DBA, the classical Postgres DBA, there is a path of learning, which move from some traditional ways of doing things to some of these things that maybe not even today, but in the future, they're gonna be handled by, by Kubernetes usual ecosystem tools. That is good news in general because this helps us, helps everybody, uh, you know, lower the barrier of entry to Postgres. Postgres is still a database which requires a very high expertise to operate. If part of this expertise becomes a standard Kubernetes expertise, something that any CKA, for example, could do, then we are making Postgres more widespread. And this is good news because there's not that so many Postgres experts in the world. So. We're, one of the goals is to lower this barrier. So for Postgres DBAs, to summarize this, there is there's a real learning process to take, not very big today, maybe bigger in the future because more things will move to more standard Kubernetes. But this is not aching to, this is not new in the world where DBAs are becoming less of a DBAs and more of a DBREs or, or part of a DevOps team because databases are no longer isolated environments they are part of whole architectures uh, where they interact with a lot of components and data pipelines, for example, is one of those examples. Great point on a technical yeah. level, both a technical level and an organizational level, because we're getting rid of that silo of like, no, DBA, they're all over there in their corner. No, the interaction with other teams, the overlapping of different technologies, and perhaps also decision-making processes in which groups that traditionally were separated are now going to be brought together. Gabriele, you, you, you had your hand up. Go for it. Yeah, no, no. For example, I wanted to say, for example, our recommendation is to, is to actually adopt the microservice architecture and, and dedicate one instance to one database for the reason, you know, that Alvaro was saying before, you know, to be closer to application developers. So that's the whole point, in my opinion, of, of, of this whole movement is to break the barrier between DBAs and, and developers and enable developers to develop faster, safer, and, and more reliably, you know. So I think if uh, developers have control of, of the database uh, that will host data of, the, of their applications, I think it's better. And that's, I think, where DBAs need to work more closely to developers. I think that's what also Pro Alvaro was saying before, you know, maybe We've got this amazing language, which is SQL. It's, it's very often an, an unknown, you know, gem that we have and we forget. I think the role of DBA is probably to work more closely on, on SQL and assist, you know, the developers and, and do less, uh, you know, operational uh, work on replicas, failovers, switchovers, and things like that, you know, or even... It's Avoid, avoid avoid split brains, which were, in my opinion, more common outside Kubernetes than inside. You know, so yeah, that's a great point. I love that. I love that you're talking about. I mean, and you mentioned earlier, Gabriel, about getting uh, you know closer to the CI/CD pipeline and, yeah. and how you know this technology can help that. That that really starts to bring the the DBA and the developer and the ownership over 
schema yeah. and you know how things work uh, is is really cool. That's great. Yeah, that's the why. You know, the the why yeah. of all of these. You know, there's always need. There always needs to be a why. You know, which we we do things, and that's the biggest why, in my opinion. For sure. I think just one other quick thing that I would say about moving. You know, just uh, you know, are you going to have more or less responsibilities, whatever that would be? One is just, you know, I I really appreciate not just again not because I'm a time scale, but I, I love that Stackress. You know that they thought about using how can we get logs into something that is more natural for us to to query and think about, right? So it's it's actually an opportunity as you're retooling some of these setups to even think about ways to improve the process. It's it's exactly what both of these gentlemen have been saying. You know, it really frees you up to like take advantage of everything that this has to offer. Uh, and and automate and make this stuff better for everybody, not just this uh, the silo. Great point. To be honest, as a DBA, to, to query logs with SQL versus uh, you know grab org yeah. set and and something <laughs> over logs over SSH over a lot of servers. Oh my God, it, it's it's such a new world. It's great. Good, good, good. Well, that being said, we are getting towards the end. It's very obvious that there's going to be a round two. Um, it may be in KubeCon. It may be at a different time because there's so much more that we can talk about. But for reasons of time, we are going to we are going to wind it down. We've got a couple of questions that we we will want to address on Slack um, that we weren't able to get to. Great interaction with the audience today. Thank you. Uh, which is no surprise because, like I said, the Postgres, there's just such a solid vibe here. It's like being in an ACDC concert. Um, but uh, but anyway, I think we. I think we got through a lot. I think we got a lot of a lot of good things on the table, and and a lot of good things to take away with us um, at at an organizational level, as well as from a community perspective of different things that we can that we can keep in mind as we as we address the the what and the how. But as you were all mentioning right now as well, to the why, right? That's something we continually ask, and we get different responses. You know, oh, very good, ACDC, shout out, <laughs> a little little Acid, I love it. Post Chris, ACDC. <laughs> Oh man, this is this is new level stuff. Uh, that, that is some serious, serious niche level swag. Where did you? Where get is that, that from? I want to yeah. find oh, that. that. There's a long story behind that. You know. Oh, but you can tell it. Tell us the short version of your long story. How it came out after I think three or four sprints, I was having a shower and I came up with this idea. <laughs> you know. My next question is, how can I get one? Um, oh, that, it's public. You know, I can share the link. Everyone can. Oh, that's great. Oh, yeah. Please do. Please do. Um, yeah. All right. Very good. Cool. So, yeah, if you can drop. Yeah, I'll link. share the link in the, in the, in the chat. Yeah, share it on in Slack. Yeah, yeah, share, yeah, share it yeah. on Slack. So, folks, if you want to check out the link uh, for the Postgres ACDC <laughs> mashup, please check out the link in Slack. As usual, all three of these wonderful people are very accessible in our Slack. If you have questions, if you have doubts, if you want to check something, et cetera. Um, so please take advantage of that as well. Also remember that you can you can get a talk in for KubeCon um, as we are very much looking forward to getting uh, two tracks fully loaded with lots and lots of great content. So that being said, just as tradition beholds us too, I will share my screen really quickly. So you can see what our artist, Angel, was doing in the background while you were talking. So That's we have awesome. a wonderful depiction. Uh, and the Postgres uh, got <laughs> this Postgres elephant, the brown one, made it in there. Very happy to see that. I'm sure we'll get some ACDC in the wrap um, to celebrate this live stream. Amazing audience, great questions, great conversation. For me, it's also nice to break away from the traditional deck-based uh, talks 
and and just to be just to be having as if we were having a coffee together. So this is really good. Always stimulating to talk about Postgres. Uh, it gives so much. It seems like it's the gift that keeps on giving. Thank you all very much. Like I said, all three of you are very easy to find in our Slack as well as social media. We'll have the live stream up very, very soon for those of you who uh, got here a little bit late. And as always, looking forward to continue the conversation in our Slack. So thank you very much, everybody. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye.